HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Two percent, two percent, two percent. Uh, the two percent's right over here. Oh, hey, Jenna. I didn't know you shopped here. Uh, yeah, anything to support local food, know what I mean? I definitely do. Though that's not the only thing you do in the name of Good Eats, obviously. Well, true. I also host Eating Matters every Wednesday at 5 p.m. where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. Be sure to tune in. All right, gotta get the plug in there, I get it. Yep, I'm hashtag shameless. You know what else you can do to support the local food community, right? Well, yeah. Make a donation to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. That's right. And I gotta call you out on the whole local thing. What do you mean? Well, The Farm Report, A Taste of the Past, Japan Eats. Those are shows that take you around the country and the world. I'll give you that. So how can listeners give their support? It's pretty easy. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the big red heart in the top right corner. It's pretty easy from there. Thanks. Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit cane5.com. I'm Erin Fairbanks, host of The Farm Report. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. What's on your plate tonight for dinner? T-Rex? Hmm, maybe. We'll find out today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And T-Rex, well, today we're talking about chicken. And it is a descendant of the dinosaur, T-Rex, which we'll find out soon more about that. But never before in modern history, as my guest has written, has a food risen so quickly in national eating favor, and never before has any country consumed such prodigious amounts of it, and that is indeed chicken. My guest today is Emmeline Rood, and Emmeline has just written, in fact, it was the book was released two days ago, um, a book called Tastes Like Chicken, and we'll talk about that title more later. 
Emmelin is a culinary historian who has written about food for Time Magazine and Vice and has been a contributor to National Geographic's The Plate. She's also been a media manager for some well-known chefs and restaurateurs, which, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> the book might uh, not balance out on that one. But, Emmeline, welcome so much to the show. I'm happy to have you here. Uh, thank you. Glad to be here. You say, and you've written, that this is a book of agricultural science and human health, economics of feeding a nation, and the politics that encircle the making and eating of a food. But on a more intimate level, this really is just a story about dinner. <laughs> I think that's wonderful, and it really does encapsulate this book, which is a real fun read. I mean, it, it, we were talking before the show. It could have been a very dry book of statistics and, and historical facts, but you have managed to put it in such beautiful narrative form. It was a fun read, indeed. Oh, thank you. <laughs> what? brought you one out and now I will I will say that you do kind of come by it naturally in a sense um about your background because you've lived all over the world right uh, not all over the world but my parents are were they're retired now uh they were members of the foreign agriculture service which is a little known branch of USDA that travels the world and promotes U.S. agriculture, essentially. Yeah, of course, countries. right. Yeah. But what in particular brought you to this topic of chicken? Well, I've always loved food. I'm sure most people can agree with that statement. Um, but chicken in particular, it's unusual because I don't particularly like chicken. Um, when I was eight, I'm sure my mother has a different take on the story, but I just decided I didn't like meat. So I stopped eating it. I would throw tantrums for whatever reason. I just didn't enjoy it. And so meat eating has always been sort of a very interesting subject for me as an outsider. I eat it now, not overly, but I will try meat, and I'm not quite as strict in my vegetarianism. Um, but just watching people eat this food that I just can't, I just generally dislike every meal of every day. Chicken is the default food of almost everyone I know. Uh, indeed. <laughs> What's for dinner tonight, right? <laughs> yeah. And so this book actually started off as my senior thesis in college. Um, I wanted to write about food, but I wasn't really sure of the topic. And I went to a professor's office. He taught a wonderful class on the history of dietetics, sort of the history of humans and health and the body and eating. And we were just having a conversation, and he said this random phrase that the chicken is an incredible piece of technology, which is actually how I begin the book with him kind of hiddenly saying that. And it sort of stuck, struck a chord in my mind that, that maybe there's something more to chicken eating than just sort of a, a thing that I think is strange. Well, you have done a, a fabulous job in, in your research, I have <laughs> to say. You. A lot more than just chicken eating, for sure. Um, so... <laughs> The question is, in your research, did you solve that proverbial phrase of Aristotle's, which came first, <laughs> the chicken or the egg? <laughs> well, from an evolutionary sense, we actually know the the egg came first, laid by an animal that is not quite yet a chicken. So that is the phrase. I think culinary speaking, the egg definitely came first. <laughs> if you see in American history, at least people have always eaten a lot more eggs than they have chicken. Right. In fact, so. they didn't particularly eat the chickens. I mean, unless out of duress, right? <laughs> uh, it's kind of a strange thing to think about because people have always eaten chicken. They've just never eaten a lot of chicken. Mm. 
Um, so we eat chicken today. I'm sure everyone, the why behind chicken today, it's cheap, it's convenient, and it's good for you. That's what I think most people would justify. Cheap source of protein. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But the crazy thing about chicken history is that up until 30 years ago, chicken was none of these things. It was one of the most expensive meats. It was considered one of the most inconvenient things to cook because obviously a chicken is a small little creature that requires lots of butchering and lots of time for a relatively little quantity of food. Mm -hmm. And people also didn't think it was healthy. Um, In ye old days, before we had all this nutrition (laughs) science, chicken was considered a food only to be eaten by sick people or weak people. Um, People justified it as a woman's food because it was very soft. White meat. Yes, Yes. a white meat. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And it wasn't even considered a meat at all. Um, in the earliest recorded definition of a meat, it's actually just a required food. So that's why you have the phrase nut meat. And when you read the 1611 version of the Bible, God gave Adam and Eve um, every green herb for meat, and which just seems strange phrasing. But because of the English preference for what we now consider meat eating, meat became meat animals for food. But chicken, for the longest time, wasn't considered a meat. It wasn't considered a meat until almost the 1970s. It was mm. sort of an outside... It was clearly an animal food, but it wasn't a powerful strength-giving food. Poultry. Yes, right. exactly. <laughs> well, poultry, 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 right. Fowl. Right. <laughs> uh, well, when... But um, chickens have... I mean, they've roamed around, but they but they really started... They started where? And you say Southeast Asia? Southeast Asia, yeah. They were... The primary his, uh, chicken ancestor is the red jungle fowl, Gallus gallus, if you want to go Latin. Um, and that's a native of Southeast Asia. And the chicken that we know today is a product of this jungle fowl being brought by humans to sort of different parts of the world and breeding with them until we have Gallus gallus domesticus. And the bird originally was believed to have been domesticated for cockfighting, not for eating, not mm-hmm. for its eggs. Um, which is interesting to think about, that humans did that first. Um, But the bird has just always been infinitely useful. Obviously, entertaining with cockfighting, chicken meat, chicken eggs, chicken feathers. Feathers, sure. Yeah, and it's small, too, so people can take it everywhere. So from the time it was domesticated, it spread very rapidly with almost every wave of human movement out of that region. Well, in fact, you you, um, included a, a very interesting quote that just resonates then with uh, that whole topic um, from a Reverend Dixon on the history of management of poultry. Yes. Um, he says, <laughs> next to the dog, the fowl has been the most constant attendant upon man in his migrations and his occupations of strange lands. Yes. <laughs> it's, yeah. When Captain Cook went to the Pacific in his diaries, he and his men are just astounded that all the animals there are so familiar. They have pigs, they have dogs, they have chickens. Um, so the chicken is literally everywhere. Well, and it's it's not unusual to see paintings, old sketches in, in books of explorers or people in other lands and un- tucked under their arm, there's <laughs> a chicken. Yeah. <laughs> Probably more so than before a dog, you know, there was yeah. a chicken because they were useful. Yeah. So when did, when did the domestication of chickens really take off and, and begin? Um, well, the chicken itself, not necessarily for food, was around 8,000 to 10,000 years ago. Wow. Um, so a while, but I don't know how recent that is compared to other animals. I should have looked that up. Um, but the chicken for food has always sort of been an afterbase. Chicken for food didn't really start until this century as sort of a, a primary source of feeding the world. Mm-hmm. Um, 
before that again, as I've said, it's, was for every other reason besides eating, really. And certainly eggs. I mean, eggs, yes, yes, you know, eggs. Was the in fact, they'd go on the boats. Um, yeah, they would with, feed with explorers too, right? Good for yeah, eggs. <laughs> exactly. Until they weren't producing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and then what happened? Yeah. Um, well, I, I said at the top of the show that that, that um, never before in modern history has a food risen so quickly, and that we eat such prodigious amounts. What, and as far as the rise of favorite meats or poultry, <laughs> white meat, how where, what how much are we talking about um, today? Last statistic I saw was around ninety pounds per person per which, in the United year? States per year. Sorry, per year. per year. For reference, pork and beef are each just around fifty pounds. Um, so chicken, we eat almost twice as much chicken as we did our formerly favorite foods, beef and pork. Hmm. Um, when you take that as a whole, it's incredible. There's, it, it's 8.2 billion chickens just in this country wow. that are eaten every year. Wow. Um, that's well, a lot. <laughs> so it's not surprising that it became big business. But they, um, the, in the migration of the chickens, I mean, there's so many, as you say, they were used... For so many of the things, the byproducts of chickens, you know, the feathers and things. But you had told, and I want you to tell it, okay. you wrote a, a, an interesting story about some ancient Roman explorers who used chickens to foretell uh, yes. the outcome so, of battles. Chickens have always been divine. A lot of cultures have associated chickens with gods. Um, and the Romans were no different. They would often sacrifice roosters and hens to the Roman gods for whatever they needed blessings for. And one of the uses of the chicken was as a fortune teller. Um, if a chicken ate well, it was a sign that good things were to come. And if a chicken ate poorly or wouldn't eat, it was not so good. And so there's a famous um, general right before the Battle of Drapano in which the Romans, I think, took on Carthage. I can't remember. Many centuries ago. Um, where he famously had chickens on board and did the augury, and the chickens refused to eat. And obviously, he was quite pissed <laughs> that this was not good. So he threw his chickens into the ocean, screaming, if they don't eat, then let's let them drink. Um, and then he lost the battle. <laughs> yeah, he lost the battle because his, his men were probably starved. They had yes, no eggs. exactly. <laughs> and he was mean to the chickens. They didn't have anything to eat. <laughs> um you know that what I said we'd talk about the title of the book uh, as we got on in the show tastes like chicken um tell us a story about that and where that came from so uh tastes like chicken I do not know who the first person to ever think something tastes like chicken is but tastes like chicken definitely has been a concept that's been around for a while because obviously people have eaten chicken when Columbus first arrived in the new world actually uh in his diaries after he ate iguana, he writes, the meat is good and tastes like chicken. So clearly it was enough of a cultural references back in 1492 when he sailed the ocean blue. <laughs> so we can attribute it to Columbus, right? We, I, I think we can in some ways, although I'm sure many people before thought many things tasted like chicken. But interestingly enough, you say that when they got to uh, the colonies, there were chickens already roaming around. No, not in the colonies. Oh, they were not in the before, colonies. Because turkeys were here, I know. Turkeys were here. Yeah. There, were bunch, there was lots of things to eat there is people would write home granted you can take this as a grain of salt probably trying to convince people to come to the new world <laughs> um that there were just flocks of pigeons flocks of geese huge numbers of ducks just a prodigious quantity of poultry but there was no chicken 
um, the Americas prior to European settlement were the one continent besides Antarctica still that had no chicken. Interesting. Yeah, and why this is the case, no one's really sure. There was some controversy a few years ago because people believed that a chicken that in South America had genes that indicated contact with the Pacific, um, which might have indicated like a pre a connection between the Pacific and South America that was previously unknown, sort of rewriting the history of discovery. Right, some other sailor got there first. Um, but that has since been disproven. So hmm. there may well be indications, but as far as we know, Christopher Columbus was the first person to ever bring chickens to the New World. And then look what happened, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we, you mentioned that cockfighting was one of the, the main uses of chickens and, mm-hmm. and not eating. And, and uh, But then what happened is that the... Um, they started. People started raising chickens, and as I said, when they didn't stop producing eggs, right, they would they would they would slaughter them. Right? And yeah, <laughs> might as well do something with it until it became big business. Yeah. Well, when was the rise of chicken as big business? So it, it's sort of a twofold rise. The first one comes in 1879 when this guy named Lyman Bice invented the first ever artificial incubator. Um, before this, it's very hard to. As anyone raises chicken, one of the biggest difficulties is just to get enough chickens. Like, if you can't order them from a hatchery and have them sent to you, right. obviously. <laughs> just building up your flock is very difficult because a hen will raise, will lay some eggs. It takes a few weeks for her to have enough eggs for her to start brooding. And then she takes another six to eight weeks to hatch these eggs, during which time she doesn't lay any more eggs. And then she takes the time to raise the eggs. So, so building up enough of a flock to have any sort of commercial viability is difficult when you just have chickens. Um, and people have tried to artificially incubate for a long time, and some have been successful. For example, the ancient Egyptians famously had these huge egg ovens. Hmm. And so in the shadow of the Great Pyramids, you can find all these egg ovens because they believe that chickens were the fuel for the slaves that were building these massive monuments. And you see similar uh, clay structures in China, actually, around the Great Wall. So potentially chickens also fueled people <laughs> building that monument as well. Um, but the difficulty, it's just really hard to maintain the constant heat of what a hen produces. Mm-hmm. Um, the Egyptians got really good at it, but when the Europeans tried to replicate them in sort of the 17th and 18th centuries, they did quite poorly. Um, and so it wasn't until 1879 when this Canadian, actually, named Lyman Bice invented this artificial incubator that um, single-handedly revolutionized the chicken raising business because now all of a sudden Mm. you can have enough quantities of eggs to hatch chickens and have more layers and increase your flocks and so within a decade of this invention the chicken population in the united states tripled from something like 80 million birds to over 220 um and so as a result of this the hen and egg business took off um and so well up until the 1920s you just have people eating a bunch of cheap eggs it's kind of ridiculous. In the Great Depression, um, most food consumption dropped off, obviously, because prices right. rose, right. except for eggs. Eggs were the one food item that industrialization had taken hold just in time. So Great Depression saw a cheap egg boom. Yeah, and unfortunately, a lot of people stopped raising eggs in their backyards. And yeah. Therein lies another problem. <laughs> that we're going to take a short break, and we'll talk about that when we come back. So okay. stay tuned. And this one is called August by the Hollows. We'll be right back. 
This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Hi, we're back talking with Emmeline Rude about chickens <laughs> in her new book, Tastes Like Chicken. All the history of chickens and chicken industry. We were talking about chicken industry. Okay, so the Great Depression came along. Well, mm-hmm. and the Great, and then the the economic crash of mm-hmm. twenty nine. I mean, things were and people were in pretty dire straits as far as food consumption. Yes, and so. But egg production was always that that always maintained steady. Um, is that about when Celia Steele came along? What's tell she me about her? Came about so Celia Steele is a very important person in chicken history. Um, many attribute her as the founder of the modern chicken farm. Essentially, um, poultry legend goes that in 1923, this um, essentially a farm housewife in Delmarva, which is the the portion of Delaware, Virginia, and Maryland, that sort right. of yeah. little peninsula altogether. Um, she received a shipment of 500 chickens instead of the 50 that she normally got each year. Uh, and obviously she can't send them back. They're a little useless after they've been shipped <laughs> off. So she just decided to raise them all. And instead of just having a laying flock, she decided to just take all of her extra birds and just sell them as meat. Um, and she happened to have an off-market time when these all reached peak. Normally, all chi- chicken used to be a very highly seasonal commodity, so all the chickens would arrive in market at the same time. Celia managed to become to send all of her extra birds at the same time. Uh, sorry, probably a few weeks before that, and made intense profits. Uh, I think something like eight sixty eight dollars and sixty cents a pound wow. in profit, which is a lot in modern modern money, not yeah. nine twenty three money. And so she just decided this is great. <laughs> and so the next year she doubled the amount of chickens. Within two years she's up to ten thousand chickens. Um, and from there, industrial scale chicken farming was born. Huh. And and I mean, it took obviously it took off uh, with consumption. Yes. With the consumers. I mean, they just, they really went for it. Yeah. So obviously before this, chicken was seasonal, as I said, and it was also very, very expensive. It's hard to think of chicken now as an expensive commodity. Obviously we eat it every day and it's one of the cheapest things you can buy in the grocery store. But well up until again, the 1960s, 1970s, it was one of the most expensive meats you could possibly buy, uh, especially in cities. It's unique in that if you're a farm family, obviously a chicken is not quite so much as a luxury because you can raise it and then kill it and eat it. Um, but if you lived in the city, the prices of a chicken, also at the 19th centuries, were almost four times that of a sirloin steak, if you want a relative price. So they're very expensive, a food that most people only attributed to rich people. Only rich people could afford to eat chicken. 
uh, the lower classes actually ate veal instead of chicken. They made veal birds. Veal birds, right. <laughs> you, you give a wonderful recipe. for you. The, the book, I have to say, to tell my listeners, that the book is peppered with some very interesting recipes, um, and it follows the line of history from historic recipes, right? Yes. From Apicius to up through modern day yes. from uh, <laughs> some of our current recipe writers, and it's, it's very interesting. Uh, but veal birds, yes, I did notice that recipe. Veal birds, yeah. It's Something kind of... to look like chicken, and we do just the opposite now, Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> um, what were you talking about? Oh, oh so, so it was a luxury good, mainly because it was seasonal. It was hard to get large quantities of chickens. And then all of a sudden, this woman in Delaware figures out a way to grow thousands of chickens at one time off peak market prices. And so people who couldn't afford chicken before, who never had who never had access to chicken poor before, all of a sudden had chicken. <laughs> well, the business obviously uh, took off and was replicated by other people who followed yes. her business model, right? Um, because then we got the, um, you know, the questions of of health and, and illness and, you know, foodborne illness mm-hmm. and avian flus. And I mean, oh, you know, <laughs> we're still grappling with all yeah, these things exactly. today, but... Um, and and then of course methods of slaughtering and politics came into it and then the kosher laws there was there was tell us about the um, some of the the what I want to say corruption or political battles involving that well th- this is interesting so I had no idea this having the way I did my research is I went through every single article the New York Times had ever published that contained the word chicken wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was very glamorous and very fun. Um, but coming into the 1910s and 1920s, there was an absurd number of articles talking about chicken dealers getting murdered. There was a very strange—I thought that was quite unusual. And digging into it, it turned out the kosher mob in the 1920s in New York City was one of the most violent and dangerous organizations in the city. Um, it was because there was obviously a large Jewish population at this point in time and they were coming in large numbers and the city was growing so police couldn't enforce any laws there's just so many people it's hard to keep track uh lots of immigrant groups were coming in and they didn't really know the norms of the new society so it's easier to take advantage of them and people just had a huge demand for kosher chicken meat and so racketeers would take advantage of it and strong arm dealers and bomb kosher butchers and basically try to get people to pay an extra few cents per bird to fill their own pockets. <laughs> of course, right. <laughs> so what's new? What's new today? Nothing, yeah. Yeah, nothing new today. Um, so there was also then um, the Food and Drug Administration and you know, groups like Good Housekeeping got into the picture because people were concerned about the quality of their chickens, right? Yeah. Um, another thing that was very interesting going through my wonderful archives was that when you look at the media... People died almost every week from eating chicken. It was a very common occurrence just because food safety, obviously, is not to the same level. And you just couldn't control the diseases that were coming in. Um, sorry, I'm going off tangent. <laughs> no, that was it. That was good. But how how they were um, regulated by yeah, the Food so, and Drug Administration. Yeah, so eating chicken was always very dangerous especially when you have people like the kosher mob coming in and you have um, fractured slaughterhouses and all this stuff. And so the USDA struggled for, for a very long time to figure out how to properly regulate and happily, how to properly slaughter chickens to reduce foodborne illness. Um, and it's still something, obviously, we 
we struggle with. But right. it's much better. I will say that compared to what it used to be when you see the archives. Well, it, you know, it's Americans in particular, not you know, because Europeans are, are more accustomed to buying or were um, accustomed to buying meat in the meat markets. But Americans kind of shy away from seeing yeah, heads exactly. and feet. Right? They like their things wrapped in cellophane in the supermarket on it the shelf. True. You know. And uh, and and yet there are people who say, you know, if you eat meat, then you should respect how it's killed, and you should, you know. So seeing a head and a feet, yeah. and the feet, <laughs> reminds them they're eating an animal, you know. Uh, but the um, there a big business came in in another way, and that you know the names we know. I'm thinking of chicken under cellophane in the supermarket oh, shelves, like yes, Purdue yes, and and and, um, and Tyson, and and um, and then of course we have Colonel Sanders. Yeah. <laughs> I was amazed to find out that there were today eighteen thousand Colonel uh, Kentucky Fried KFCs, Chicken places yeah, it's a lot. worldwide. Yeah, it's a lot it's of very worldwide. popular chain. But the because it was an appeal, an economic appeal, as we said earlier, as a cheap source of protein. Um, suddenly. You know, a lot of a lot of these big businesses were producing pieces of chicken, and, and there was what there was something happened with the the um, the broilers were disappearing. What was what was going on with the, that? The broiler? Are you talking? Well, explain. First of all, explain it to the sizes of the chickens and what um, we call them broilers. We mm-hmm. call them fryers. We call them you know stew hens or roasting birds. What what's so, the designation on that? In Ye old days again. There used to be more than one type of chicken you could find in the grocery store. Uh, today, the bir- the vast, vast, vast majority of birds you find in the supermarket are broiler birds. And by definition, those are birds aged six to eight weeks. Um, and traditionally, the best way to cook them would be to broil them. Um, but there's also, after that, is a fryer, which is a bird that's slightly bigger. And obviously, it's better suited for frying. And then after that is a bird that's a few months old called the roaster. And traditionally, these would tech always reach the dinner tables and were fattened perfectly in time for Thanksgiving and Christmas, where mm. they were roasted. Mm. And then last but not least are the, the old the old guys, the stewing, stewing hens. hens. right? Yeah. <laughs> right. And the old roosters that have no more purpose but to flavor right. a good stew. Uh, well, in fact, the... the um the chicken we went to go back to the time when after the Great Depression, Herbert, uh, the financial crash, and Herbert Hoover said, uh, "Yeah, chicken." He promised them, well, yeah, one of his <laughs> one of his campaign promises was a chicken in every pot. Right? Um, didn't quite make it there, yeah. but but he got sued. Actually, people sued the Republican Party because because they, he didn't provide. he didn't provide a chicken in every pot. <laughs> right. um, well, when I, I guess what I was saying about the disappearance, not the broiler so much as the fryers, because with big business we have, well. Colonel Sanders and Kentucky Fried Chicken and and Tyson's um, products. Uh, so a lot of these chickens were being fried, were being used for big business, and reg- just regular chickens. Um, there were all these pieces, other pieces left for things. And along comes this guy, Robert Baker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Great story. Tell me about Robert Baker. So um, before Mr. Baker came onto the scene... Uh, it was around the end of the 1950s was when the chicken industry finally took off. They'd finally figured out how to produce lots of cheap chickens really quickly and get them to consumers. The problem is no one was eating chicken. Um, for At this point, we didn't have the cholesterol scare and, and the idea that red meat was bad for you. So people now chicken used to be thought of as a prestige food, but now chicken was sort of a cheap 
item in the grocery store that people were eating a little bit more because it was cheaper, but they it just wasn't something that they particularly wanted to eat. Um, and the chicken industry was obviously not thrilled. They just spent so much money and time trying to make chicken cheap and affordable that literally when there were multiple chickens for every pot, no one was <laughs> eating chicken anymore. Um, so they needed to find a way to not only get people to eat more chicken, but also to, to make more money for themselves. Because at the end of the 1950s, there's something called the broiler depression where prices just plummeted. The U.S. government was worried that the chicken industry was just going to totally fall apart after they just spent so much time and money building it up. Um, and so at this point came along this man named Robert Baker, who the world owes the chicken nugget. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was a food scientist at Cornell, and he had grown up on an orchard in upstate New York during the Great Depression. So he, he knew about lives of farmers. He knew how difficult it was to make ends meet. And he became a poultry scientist, and his aim was to find a way to help poultry growers around Ithaca and upstate New York um, make more money on their birds because he was seeing how they were struggling at this time. Even though they had very advanced technology, they had very, very advanced birds, they were doing everything right, but they still weren't making money. Um, so he decided to go into processed chicken. That was his calling. Um, because this, as we were talking about before, there, there used to be so many types of chickens, broilers, fryers, roasters, multitude of breeds. All well, and we developed an appetite for certain parts of yes, the bird, exactly. Chicken breasts and, you know, chicken um, So there, there used to be a diversity, but now because of industrialization, what made chicken so efficient to produce also made them kind of the same. They're just sort of one type of chicken that people were buying, and they were only buying, as you're saying, the breasts and the thighs, the, the what grocery stores called the Cadillac of the chicken. <laughs> um, so Robert Baker... His mission was to try to find a way to not only help producers produce more birds, but to use those bits of the chicken that no one was eating. So he started developing all these products like chicken nuggets, chicken hot dogs, chicken hamburgers. Basically, any chicken product that you eat that is not an actual chicken. Chicken bologna. Yes, yeah, chicken, chicken bologna, chicken <laughs> chunkalona, chicken loaf. He's, he invented over 60 products. Um, wow. And he almost single-handedly saved the chicken industry because of processed chicken, where before chicken was seen as very inconvenient. Because obviously, as I said, you don't get much meat for the amount of effort you put into butchering and slaughtering a chicken. It all of a sudden became the super convenient item that was value-added so you could charge more for it. And um, it helped chicken farmers. It boosts chicken consumption. Hmm. And it's just great for everyone involved in the chicken industry. Yeah, indeed. Well, and as you had said before, you know, our, our appetite grew because we weren't eating a lot of chicken, and, and it was relegated to chicken for poor people yes. and for women who yes, didn't exactly. need the string. Men had to eat red meat, yes, and lots of beef. beef. Well, actually, and there was also racism involved in in um, farming chicken and, and livestock. Uh, yeah, um, this is. If you really want a great book on this topic, it's called uh, Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs. It's by this historian in Maryland, uh, Psyche Forsen Williams, William Forsen. Anyway, it's about the relationship between African-Americans and chicken. Because obviously today, fried chicken is a very racially loaded cliche. Right. Um, and it goes back to... I talk about this in my book. Obviously, I add some research, but she definitely is the greatest person to talk to about this topic. Um that back in the day, back in the days of slavery, slaves weren't allowed to own livestock. Um, in slaves, in plantation slavery, the food that slaves often got was almost never enough for them to get through the week. So they would either raise their own food or steal their own food. 
as a, so to protect the livestock of white people from enslaved people, they instituted, instituted these slave codes that prohibited slaves from owning pigs or cows or horses. But the chicken, because no one has really cared about the Nobody chicken wanted ever, it. <laughs> yeah, that was totally fine. So it sort of became a thing that slaves would have their own flocks of chicken and they could sell the eggs and the feathers and the meat back to their masters. Or a lot of them would take to the streets and start just selling chicken to passerbys. Um, and just sort of became a known thing that when you're in the South, the best food would be had from these chicken merchants on the side of the road. Um, and that's sort of the origins of this, what is now a very fraught, fraught cliche. Right, yeah. right, indeed. Indeed it is. Um, today, of course, we are seeing um, a renaissance of the backyard <laughs> chicken coop. Everybody, in fact, you were recently on a show with Emily Peterson, one of our hosts, and she she's raising chicken. chickens, yeah. right? And I have, I have uh, some, some offspring raising chickens up in, in, in the country. Uh, people, even in cities, are keeping a couple of chickens in their backyard. <laughs> well, certainly as far as the... Um, a lot of the foodborne illnesses and and no harm and, and now too because of our love of the chicken breast and the big mm-hmm. fat. What happened to the industry? Right, a lot of hormones and. Well, there's actually this is the one the one I know the the chicken industry is not that easy to defend, but hormones is one thing that I will say there are no added hormones used in any chicken in the United States. Just it's been illegal since the 1950s. And also, well, if you want to argue it as well, chickens are animals, so they naturally have hormones. So there's also nothing as a hormone-free chicken. But so if you see a chicken labeled hormone-free, that is just a marketing ploy. Okay. There's no reason <laughs> to, to pay extra money for that because all chickens are that and, But antibiotics, they would treat them with uh, antibiotics yes. before they went to market. I mean, so the antibiotics thing is actually fascinating. So what happened was in 1948, I think, Somebody discovered the cure for um, pernicious anemia. Pernicious, obviously, it's a lack of vitamin uh, B12. And so people, a lot of people died from this. No one had any idea what, what the cause was until the 1930s. This guy named George Whipple discovered that when he force-fed his patients raw liver, they would survive from pernicious anemia. <laughs> um, and eventually, scientists got to work. And by 1948, they'd isolated B12 as a potent potent um, vitamin that cured pernicious anemia. And so, obviously, chicken scientists were watching, too, so they quickly discovered as well that B12 was essential for chickens. And so farmers, always wanting to keep up with the advances in feed and growing, started giving their chickens B12 supplements. There were two supplements on the market at the time, and one of the supplements made the chickens grow really fat, really fast, and no one knew why. So it turns out when people were isolating the B12, that one company was a little more relaxed in how they were doing it. Both companies were using um, the residues from antibiotics to extract this B12. And the company that left a little more of the antibiotics on their supplement, that, that supplement worked a lot better to grow chickens. And so they discovered it wasn't the B12, it was antibiotics. Huh. Antibiotics were chicken miracle grow. They grew... Fat, fatter faster, they died less, they required less feed to get faster. It was incredible for an industry that was, has always struggled to make a profit. And so almost immediately, every farmer started dousing their feed with growth-promoting antibiotics. Oh. Um, and so we still have it today, and obviously people blame that for the antibiotic resistance that right, right. we're facing. Right. And so people then start took to raising chickens in their backyards. But yes. also there has been... Um, 
you were saying how it was the cheapest. It was so cheap. It's the cheapest food, you know, the cheapest source of protein. We were talking about that. However, those um, companies that are now reviving some of the heritage breeds, mm-hmm. they're, the chickens are amazing, and they're not that cheap. I mean, you can pay, yeah, you know, $30 for a chicken, you know, just a one one chicken, but... It will feed a lot more people, it seems to me, because I don't know. The taste is there's it's richer, there's it's fuller. Um, it may just be me <laughs> trying to rationalize the amount of money, but it is an interesting story, and it continues because chicken is still, as you write, one of the most popular dinners in America. I mean, it, it is yeah. it is still, and it's not just it's all over the globe. That's it's that's right. it's spreading everywhere, and thanks largely to American chicken producers. And- right. Well, Emmeline Rood, thank you so much for all your research. It is, it's fascinating. I Who knew yeah. there could be so much tied into a chicken? Right? But the name of the book, again, is Tastes Like Chicken, and it's not an iguana. It's a chicken. <laughs> Tastes Like Chicken. And Emmeline Rood, thank you so much once again, and thank you all for listening. This has been A Taste of the Past, produced at heritageradionetwork.org. If you like this program... Why don't you go to our website and click on the beating heart and help us stay alive? Okay, this is Linda Palaccio. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.